If you have your Bible, open with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Just a few verses that we're going to read today where Jesus talks about a truth that is, as I have told you before and will tell you probably again in this message. This truth is the only thing that the cross applies to that and what it encompasses. And without this truth, the cross of Jesus Christ makes no sense at all. In his teaching in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says at verse 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Many years ago, shortly after I went into ministry full-time, I was driving down South Broadway in Yonkers, where we lived, and I saw a very good friend of mine who I was very close with. He was in our wedding party, and when I saw him, I pulled over, shouted him down, and we began to talk how things were going. I hadn't seen him in a little bit of time. And so he began to tell me what he was doing. We happened to be in front of St. Joseph's Hospital there on South Broadway. He was an electrician and he was working for the hospital. I told him I finally went into full-time ministry. We were just catching up. We were good friends. And then he proceeded to tell me that his father was in the hospital. He had had a massive heart attack, who I knew well because I knew his whole family well. We were best of friends for years. And he said to me, he said, you know, my dad related. So we had this heart attack at home, went down onto the floor and related to my friend that when he had this event, this cardiac event, he knew he was leaving his body. Now, let me just say one thing about my friend's father. He was anything but what you would call spiritual or religious. There was nothing about him. And remember, I knew this family well. There was nothing even loosely connected to this man's life that you would call religious or spiritual, nothing like that. Very far from it. But he related the story that he was leaving his body after he had had this cardiac event, and he was approaching this very large ball of fire. And he kept approaching and approaching and approaching, and then it just stopped because they resuscitated him. I knew that my friend already knew about this doctrine because he had come to church with me several times, and generally speaking, it's known. And then I said to him, I said, you know, he needs to know Jesus. And I said to him, my friend, I said, I will stop back and I'll speak to your father. Remember, this is not a religious man. 
not a spiritual man. I didn't know how I would be received or if he would listen. But on this subject, it doesn't matter. Because we are not responsible for what people do with the truth. We're just responsible that we say it. And I can say this honestly, that I have few regrets in the years since I received Christ. But I have a few. And this is one of them. I never made it back to that hospital. And he passed away. Now, I know that God has many ways to reach a person, but I had made a statement. I wasn't asked to come and visit. I just made a statement. I will come back. But here was the thought, and this is the thought that many of you have. Well, I can't get there today, so it'll be tomorrow. There's still time. But I did not know. There wasn't much time left. And so when I deferred to bring the gospel message to my friend's father... And of course, I don't know what the final verdict was from God's point of view, where he is today. I don't know. I just know his story. And the reason that I'm relating to you a personal story is because no doubt many of you have read other stories of who went to heaven and what they saw and who went to hell and what they saw. And there really is no way for us to substantiate their testimony or their stories because it's entirely subjective. I admit that I've read many of these stories and I take a neutral position because I don't know if it's true or not. Did they actually see hell, heaven? I, I can't say that they did and I can't say that they didn't. But we have this book and we have Jesus teaching. And the fact is, Jesus taught that this place that we know as hell, that's written in the Bible as hell, is real. And the only option that we have with regard to this topic or any other one the Bible speaks on is to accept it or to reject it. There isn't any other options. There isn't any other alternative. I want to tell you today just briefly what is the duty of a preacher. The duty of a preacher, number one, is to preach the gospel just as it is. Not to amend it by adding to it or diminishing it. You may want to take the time to look up some of these verses here. I won't quote them, but you can look up in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 2. Also in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verse 32, where God says, This is my word. Don't add to it and don't diminish it. Don't diminish anything from it. Do whatsoever I command you, but don't add and don't diminish. We find this also in Proverbs, chapter 6. We find this in the book of the Revelation, chapter 22, where repeatedly throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, God says, don't add to my word and don't take away from it. And this is the word of God. So I want to repeat this one scripture that I've been giving to you so that you'll be reminded of the importance of the book that you have in your life. It's 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, for this cause, thank we God also without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, the word of God, the creator of the universe, the one who made all things, when you heard the word of God, or rather when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it, listen, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe the word of God from men. And I can quote other scriptures, and I have recently done that for you. I want you to be reminded that the book that you have open in your lap is not 
the words of men. It's the words of God written through men. As much as I could take out my pen and write words, one may argue the pen is doing the work, but the words are not from the pen, the words are from me. And this book, though penned, literally penned by men, were not the words of men. You can read that again in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It's the word of God. Point is, whatever subject Jesus talks about, we must take it seriously. And at this point, the only option that you have is to accept it or to reject it. That hell exists. Not only does the cross of Jesus Christ not make any sense without this doctrine, neither does the word saved, which is used frequently in the New Testament. I may argue that the word Christian doesn't make any sense. I saw an advertisement, a type of advertisement on social media recently. I don't know if this is one individual or a campaign, but the man was trying to make a point, listen to this, that Jesus was a Catholic. And I don't understand, having spent my adult lifetime in the Bible, wasn't trying to say that Jesus started the Catholic Church. He was trying to say Jesus was a Catholic. You could take it from there. It's a ridiculous statement made for people who are ignorant of this book. But you are not ignorant of this book. And this book says that this place is real, that last night millions of people went there, presumably like my friend's father, and that's a presumption, he went there without being warned. That's a presumption. I don't know that he wasn't warned. In the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel the same way he tells us. He says, if a wicked man die, committing his wickedness, and you don't warn him, he will die in his wickedness, but his blood is on your hands. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and you don't warn him, he will certainly die, but his blood is on your hands. It's a heavy statement, especially when we, well, people congregate in buildings all over the world, but especially here in the United States, and they say things to themselves like, I don't want to hear this. I've got enough problems. But let me tell you something, you will never have such a problem as to leave your body and you're not saved. And you find out in your own experience for which there is no crossing back that this place is real because Jesus said so. Further, I would submit to you that when you compare all of your problems here on earth and there's a true fear of the Lord in your life, those problems are diminished, not eradicated, but diminished because you realize that nothing could be so bad as the fact that I am not saved. Here, Jesus speaks about hell being an unquenchable fire. And if you are reading, or I should say, if you are not reading from the translation that I have here, which is the King James Bible, you may be looking for the verses in 44 and 46 and 48 and saying, those verses aren't there. I don't have those verses. No, it's the translation that you have that doesn't have the verses. And I'm not here today to discuss the intelligent reasons behind the King James translation, even though, admittedly, the words are archaic. But you're looking for verses that aren't there. And there's reasons for that. We have discussed that at length many times in this church. But I want to point out to you the verses that I read are there. The worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, meaning it's eternal. The duty of a preacher is to preach exactly what Jesus said, or the apostles, or the prophets, and not amend it, not change it, not add to it, not diminish it. 
Just leave it be and let it say what it says. Listen to the words of the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, in his book, A Call to the Unconverted, to turn and live under the subject of what is the duty of a pastor. He wrote, we tell you also of another death, even remediless and much greater torment that will fall on those that will not be converted. But as this is true and must be told you, so it is but the last and saddest part of our message. We are first to offer you mercy, if you will turn. And it is only those that will not turn nor hear the voice of mercy to whom we must foretell damnation, the doctrine of hell, too. Jonathan Edwards, who was called America's first great theologian, wrote these words, Some talk of it, the preaching of hell, as an unreasonable thing to frighten persons to heaven. But I think it is a reasonable thing to endeavor to frighten persons away from hell. They stand upon its brink and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of their danger. Is it not reasonable to frighten a person out of a house of fire? Or is it not the duty of a parent to warn their child running towards the edge of a cliff? This is the duty of a pastor. Augustine said on the eternity of hell, to say that life eternal shall be endless, but that punishment eternal shall come to an end is the height of absurdity. Spurgeon said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. These and many others I could read is the duty of a true preacher. Anything less than the preaching of the word as it is, is a dereliction of duty, is a perversion of the truth, is a lie. Some of you will remember the preacher Carlton Pearson. He was my age, and less than two months ago he passed away. He was very popular. He was an advisor to President George Bush and President Clinton as well. And at one time he had the largest church in America. Then he went through this transitional period in his own mind and then announced to his congregation that he no longer believed in hell. When he passed, again, less than two months ago, the headline in the New York Times read this way, Carlton Pearson, pastor deemed a heretic for denying hell, dies at 70. It says he led a popular religious revival and megachurch, but his peers and congregation abandoned him once he questioned core doctrine and advocated gay rights. That's the opening line of the article on Carlton Pearson from the New York Times. Quoting Pearson, the Times article said, and I said to my people, you're not really witnessing, you're afraid to, so stop telling people they have to get saved. Tell them they're already safe with God. That any issue between them and God was resolved in Christ. Don't impose sin. Don't tell them that they're on their way to hell and all that kind of stuff. Come in another way. This, I would submit to you, is probably one of Satan's greatest tactics to use a preacher of reputation to pervert the truth. Here, the article states his congregation had enough sense to leave. And that was, at that time, maybe six, 7,000 people. How many actually left? Well, it was quite a majority. They had the sense. They must have been reading the Bible for themselves. 
of which I have told you for almost 47 years. 37 here in this city and another 10 in the city. Read the Bible for yourself. See if what I'm saying is true. And if you want to read verses 44, 46, and 48, I would get a King James Version. In any case, this is, I believe, one of the greatest subtleties of Satan is to take preachers and pervert their understanding and then bring to a mass of people, many of them do it through television and radio and all types of venues, that what is plainly read, what we just plainly read, is not the truth. The key facts about eternity are these. Everyone will exist eternally in heaven or hell. We could read that in Daniel. You could read it in Matthew, which we may. If we get to it, John, and in the book of the Revelation. But I want to submit to you this interesting experiment took place years ago at Harvard in the Cognitive Learning Laboratories. Two professors trying to prove, to demonstrate, that if someone does not have something in their belief system, even if they see it, they will still not believe it. In other words, I just said to you, anybody can read it, and anybody can read it. How then can so many people be reading the Bible and not see these things? And this is just one section, one instance of Jesus teaching on hell. But here is the experiment. They took the six of spades, if you know anything about a deck of playing cards, the six of spades is black. What they did is they took the time to paint it red. So now the six of spades wasn't black, it was red. They put it back in the deck. They showed it to a score of people that went through the deck just naming the cards one by one. Jack of hearts, ace of diamonds, two of clubs, and so on. And the great majority of people, the vast majority of people, when they came to the six of spades, they were instructed, jack of hearts, what color is it? Red. Ace of clubs, what color is it? Black. And so on. They were to name the card and its color. When they came to the six of spades, even though it was painted red, when asked what color it was, the majority said black. You see, the discrimination of the mind, which we know as cognitive dissonance, if shown the card, you can see clearly that it's red. But because we have all learned, if you've ever played cards, that the six of spades is always black, then it must always be black, even though right in front of you, it's red. This was an interesting experiment from my point of view because we can be told something so many, many times that no matter what evidence is presented to the contrary, we will still give the answer that we have had imposed upon us. William James, he's called America's first psychologist, he was the one who said, nothing is so absurd, but if it be repeated often enough, it will be believed. All you have to do is keep telling people, Jesus was wealthy, and he wants you wealthy. Jesus was a billionaire, and he wants you to be... Keep saying it again and again and again. And even people who read their Bibles will come up with that lie. In other words, they're going to see the six of spades in the Bible. They'll call it black, even though it was painted red, because it's always been black. This is the need of the hour, my friends. This is the need of the hour, is to read the Bible for yourself is to look at it and see these verses here in Mark chapter 9, what I've just read, were spoken by Jesus. And as we pass by these doctrines, let me just say this. If thy hand offend thee, at verse 43, if thy foot offend thee, at verse 45, if thine eye offend thee, at verse 47, 
are hyperbolic statements. Obviously, Jesus didn't expect us to amputate foot, hand, or pluck out an eye. But he is showing us the seriousness of sin for which this crucifixion was a necessity. It had to happen. So that for eons now, we've been singing songs about the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you today, has your heart become so hardened that you're no longer really concerned about your neighbor or you're not concerned about those around you or you've become, as I mentioned earlier, so familiar with God that your life is almost, and I won't say that it is, but it's almost a form of contempt. Well, after all, you're safe and you're secure and there's certainly a huge premium that must be placed on that. However, we can become so safe that we become complacent that we no longer care. I frequently see preachers, some are just Christian marketers, advertising how to grow your church, how to get people in the front door. But that's fine. At least I suppose it's fine. I don't go much further than when they make a statement like that. I move on. But what will you do with the visitors once they're there? Will you preach the gospel? Will you let Jesus speak for himself? Without doing what God has said in many places, twice in Deuteronomy, once in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Revelation, and so on. Don't add to my word and don't take away from it. So I'll remind you, if you don't have verse 44, 46, 48, you may want to do some research and find out why it's not there. That's taking away. And then, of course, it seems to be the temptation of man, particularly people who deal with the Bible, to add to the word. Add more standards to holiness, more standards to salvation, and so on. The duty of a preacher is to preach the gospel just the way it is, for which, once again, you have an advantage here. Your pastor is constantly telling you, read it for yourself. Read it for yourself, and read it without prejudice and bias, which, though you're not physically manipulating the Bible, you are manipulating it mentally. You're adding or diminishing the Bible mentally. And God said, don't do it. Don't do it. My instructions are very precise. You're not permitted to add and you're not permitted to diminish from it. This is the duty of a preacher. Preach the gospel exactly the way it is written. Let me give you a few verses here describing this place called hell. We hear Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 25 that it was originally created for Satan and his demons. Not for you. Not for me. We see also that hell will punish the sin of those who reject Christ. Punishment is a word that is persona non grata now in our culture because we don't punish people. Even our institutions of confinement are correctional facilities. But having spent seven years in prison ministry and having known quite a few correctional officers, we find that the recidivism of people coming back to jail is exceptionally high. So what's being corrected? Let's get Jesus in there. And then we have a good chance. Hell also is conscious torment. Jesus called it a furnace of fire in Matthew 13 and verse 50, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We read here, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. In Revelation 14:10, at the lake of fire, which purposes of this message can be identified as the same thing. It's not, but we can identify it that way. There'll be torment with fire and brimstone. That is eternal and irreversible. Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. 
Revelation 20, 14, this is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, obviously, all of these things raise intellectual questions and honest questions on the part of people who have doubts about this, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, I remind you that we have one thing to consider. It is what the Bible teaches, particularly Jesus, and if at the end these things are not true, then we must dismiss Jesus from our minds because he was emphatically a liar. Or as C.S. Lewis wrote, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. When we look at the life of Jesus, we don't see anything about him that bespeaks of lying. He went willingly to a cross, and so did many of his disciples, went willingly to a martyr's death, willingly. And we don't see anything about him that is evident of him being a lunatic or in lunacy. We see calmness and peace and evenness of temperament and so many other things. The word is written about Jesus that he was in the beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was in the beginning. All things were made by him. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him. And there was not anything made that is made that wasn't made by Jesus. This is how the Bible presents Jesus. And if he was a liar and a lunatic, then none of this is true. I know for me, and I will not speak for you, I would dismiss this book from my life, get rid of every copy that I have. If I had come to a conclusion that this book is simply not true. However, the longer I live and the many questions that I have, I have an exceptionally curious mind. I can hardly study any subject that doesn't lead me to another one, then to another one, and then four more, and keep on going till I just can't look up any more information on the subject. But the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see that God wrote this book. That this doctrine is true, that I personally have not been there nor seen it. I have no testimony to bring to you of what I saw when I went to heaven or hell. But that God is true and he cannot lie. That this place is real and that at all costs you should do whatever it would take to avoid it. And then we come to this word gospel, which translated from the Greek means good news. That there's nothing you can do to avoid it. And nothing necessarily you need to do anymore to add to it to go there. But as I read from Richard Baxter, who also once said, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. As Richard Baxter said, that God is offering mercy. This being true, this being a place made for the devil and his angels, so we know what the end of what we know what their end will be. This being true, it can be avoided by a simple act of faith. Eternal life is freely given. That's why the gospel was called, and still is called. That's why the gospel, when written into a song by John Newton, called it amazing grace. That all of this here that we have earned, we will never see because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, I submit to you, is the duty of a preacher. He or she has no obligation to be talking about other things that are foreign to the Bible. Now, the Bible has a lot of subjects in here, and we deal with as many as we can. But I believe there's none more important than this one here. To be able to avoid it because God is stretching out his nail-scarred hand and offering you mercy. Woman, he says to that woman that was caught in the midst of adultery, Woman, where are thine accusers? 
And she, looking around, who had a score of accusers with stones in their hands, are all gone. When Jesus said, He who is without sin amongst you, cast the first stone. And the book says, the Bible says, in the Gospel according to John, and one by one, being convicted by their own conscience, they dropped the stones and left. And she was there alone, and Jesus said, Woman, where are thine accusers? And she said, Lord, there are none. And Jesus said, Neither do I accuse thee. Go in peace. Think about it. If anyone could accuse us righteously, it would be God. But in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, we read the one that could accuse us. This is a paraphrase. The one that could accuse us is the one that is forgiving us. The one that could have put us here is saying, I don't want you there. Like the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He was a thief. And probably other things as well, but he was definitely a sinner, of which the Bible says, all have sinned. There's no exemption here from this. But where sin did abound, grace, mercy, did much more abound. To the glory of God, that we who are under the sentence of death have now received the gift of eternal life. This is the gospel. Amen. It's interesting to note, while preachers are on the television right now, on the radio right now, in massive mega complexes with tens of thousands of people talking about wealth, talking about things that you really could get from any motivational speaker. It's interesting to know what was on the mind of Steve Jobs shortly before he passed away at the age of 56. Steve Jobs, as you know, pretty much single-handedly saved Apple from total bankruptcy and oblivion. When they brought Steve Jobs in and he came up with these innovative ideas, which, by the way, many people questioned whether these things would actually work, and many said it wouldn't work, but they did work. Steve Jobs was an exceptionally wealthy man, an exceptionally well-known man, popular. But what was his thoughts, and you can read this anywhere, what was his thoughts while he was dying? I find this interesting because Steve Jobs wasn't a preacher. While preachers, well, we use that term, are telling people right at the same moment that I'm talking to you about hell, are telling people that God wants you wealthy, and God wants you this, and God wants you that, all of which are contrary to this book. Steve Jobs, at 56, was telling people, don't seek for fame, and don't seek for wealth, and don't seek for popularity. He was saying pretty much what this book, at least in part, represents, because he had all those things. But now you see on his deathbed, similar to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, he was realizing what is really important. He talked about family. He talked about friends. He talked about the simple life. Interesting. It's interesting to me how God uses objects, people, to do the work that the preacher isn't doing and is supposed to be doing. But again, there's nothing new under the sun. It's interesting to me that Steve Jobs, at the end of his life, could have talked about many other things related to his popularity, his success, his obvious intelligence, and said just the opposite. Read it for yourself, because that's what this book is saying. Jesus fed many people, miraculously fed people, and they came back. Once people are enabled, then they feel entitled. You know that money you've been giving to me? I need my money. Well, I gave that to you just as a favor, as a gift. You're not now entitled to the money. But that's human nature. 
We see it in Jesus' time. And the people who were fed come back, and Jesus is saying, you're not seeking me because of the miracle. You're seeking me because your belly's full. Now, at that point, what did he do? What did he do, rather? And if you didn't know, you said, well, of course, he's going to make more bread because the people need it. And he didn't. He didn't. He said, now go and seek for the bread of eternal life. Seek for the bread that never ends. That was his answer, and he made no more bread. At least at that point, he made no more bread. It's interesting to me when we study the life of Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and we see the disparity between what Jesus actually did and what he actually said, as opposed to what preachers say, with no book and chapter and verse to back that up, or with a book, chapter, and verse that contradicts that statement. We know in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus did not do three things. When Satan said, make bread and prove your God, Jesus would not bake bread for the devil. When Satan says, throw yourself off of this mountain, the angels will bear you up according to Psalm 91 and prove your God. And Jesus said, I'm not jumping for you. When Jesus was asked by Satan, just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He says, there's only one God to worship. And that's the one true God. He wouldn't bake bread for the devil. He wouldn't bow down to the devil. He wouldn't do anything the devil said to do. And we must learn this lesson. This book here is the will of God. Some of you here today, you want to know what's God's will for my life? And my pat answer, start with the book. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. There you go. There's your first step. And if you won't do that, why would you ask God for more? I don't want to know about that. I want to know. He said, this is my will. And there's other statements that use that word. This is the will of God. This is my will. This is what I want for you. This is what I want you to do. And if we don't do that, what's written, why would God want to give us more? If you were to give your son or daughter some money that they misused, why would you give them more? We have so many verses in the Bible that deal with the subject of hell. And I won't go through all of them today with you. But just to generalize the subject, if you take the time to do your own study, look up cross-references to these verses here, and just the few of the verses that I did give you, and there's more, you'll see that this subject becomes a foundation for the subject of this blood on the cross, the resurrection, the new life we've been given, living it now, the looking for the return of Jesus Christ as the answer not only to our problems, but to the problems of the world. Once this takes root in your heart, I mean really takes root in your heart, you won't need a constant reminder Tell someone about Jesus, because this will dominate your thinking. Number one, they will ask you, why are you so happy? And it's not because you'll have a pocket full of money and all the wealth and all these lies, and that's all that they are, they're just plain old-fashioned lies being told by people who are dressing as angels of light, deceiving people who may want to know Jesus who, like the experiment in Harvard, though here in front of me I have a red-lettering edition of the Bible, though the words are actually in red, they're seeing black. And it's not. The words are right there. The words are right there. But I would maintain that once this doctrine sinks deep into your heart, you will be motivated to tell others about Jesus. 
Remember that you are not responsible for how people respond to a gospel track, to the message, untainted, unmolested, unadulterated. You're not responsible for what people do. You're only responsible to tell them. That's it. And I would submit to you there are many creative ways to talk to people about Jesus. I don't use one particular formula. Matter of fact, I really don't use any formula. I just introduce him to people in ways that they may not always even be aware that I'm introducing them to Jesus. Boy, the world's gone crazy. How many of you hear that a lot? My response is, Pat, on that one. Well, I said, we're fulfilling Bible prophecy at an amazing rate. And then, if God permits, I have more opportunity to tell them what Jesus said. And some listen. Earthquakes and famines and pestilences, false teachers, false prophets, and on and on. You read Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, and we see the signs of the times. The evidence for God's inspiration and his having written this book is greater than anything that can come up against it. This book, this Bible... But once the doctrine of the eternity of hell sinks deep into your heart, it will always inspire you to have compassion on others, to have pity on others. Now, I'm not saying this here today really to embarrass you. I'm not saying this here today to make you feel bad necessarily, just to provoke you to love and to good works. In all the time that you've known the Lord, for some it's just recently, less than a year, a year, five 10. I'm getting closer to 50. Someone once asked me, Pastor Ray, how do you keep that fire going all the time? And we happened to be standing next to a bonfire when he asked me the question. And there were people coming every so often throwing a new log on the fire. That's over 30 years ago. And I said to him, I said, well, it's like this fire. As long as you keep throwing a log on it, it will never go out. Theoretically, it will never go out. You know, that fire would still be burning today if we, for whatever reason, kept feeding it wood. And as you continue to feed your faith through the Bible and from the Bible, your fire will never go out. Your compassion for souls will never go out. And for prayer and everything else, it will never go out. It's just done every single day. And if this doctrine isn't true, why are we even here? I know that some people ask, what's wrong with this preacher? That preacher, you know that preacher down there talking about me? I'm aware of people thinking that I'm either eccentric or I'm a lunatic or whatever. I'm aware of that. But if they would take the time and allow me to say just what, and then hand them the book. What I just read, read for yourself. They're only left with one choice. I'm not a lunatic. I'm preaching what's written, what anybody can read. And if you continue reading it on a daily basis and praying on a daily basis, you will come to the same conclusions. Your fire will never go out. Your fire will never go out. You'll be motivated to go on when you feel pain, when you feel tired, when you don't want to do things. You'll feel motivated because this doctrine is true. Jesus cannot lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. It's true. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I just want to provoke you. And I want you to ask yourself the question. In all of this time, whether it's short or it's long, how many people have you actually led to Christ? They may not be sitting in our church. They don't have to. But they are in some church somewhere, and they are reading, and they're praying, and you hear from them once in a while. They write or whatever. How many of you have not one single person that you can name that you personally introduced to Christ? 
You see, as a preacher, I could easily fluff off my personal responsibilities to talk about Jesus in public, saying, that's your job. That's why I'm here to preach and tell you what to do. You go do it. But I don't. I don't. Because I believe this. How many people have you actually led to Jesus? And if you're saved 40 years and you can name one or two, do you think that's really befitting of this doctrine? If you believe it's true? Or have you forgotten it? Have you forgotten what that cross means? Think about it. Because that is the natural outcome of true faith in the things that Jesus said concerning this subject. And it does not mean, as I just told you, not in my opinion it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to rush out the door and tell everybody that you meet about this doctrine. Eventually it leads to that. What was the cross? Why the cross? Why blood? Why good works? is not enough. Good works are always good. They're just not good enough. We needed a debt to be paid. And that's good news by anybody's definition. Bad news, there is a hell. Good news, you don't have to go there. God himself does not want you to go there. That he's offering you mercy. And the gospel is free. And you may be a good person, as so many say. But I'm a good person. And you may be, you're just not good enough. I've known many athletes that were good athletes, but failed when they got to the professional level. And I've known a few on different sports. Very good. At the amateur level, not good enough on the professional level. You're good. You're just not good enough. And so God says, I will save you. I will save you. So I tell you this story in closing. It is an allegory. It is not a true story. But I think it makes the point. There was a bridge once that crossed the river, but it was open. In this case, the bridge was open this way so that the ships could get under. Probably seen bridges like that. I've crossed over bridges like that. They're too low for a bigger ship to get underneath, so the bridge has to go up. Ships go under, bridge comes back down mechanically, and then cars can cross. Well, this bridge at that point in time, years ago, was operated by a switchman, one person. And during the day, periodically, as you would suppose, just like we have down here near the river, the trains would come by. One day, at his station doing his duty, a 10 o'clock train was about to come in. It was time for him to go to the switch and pull it, close the bridge so that the train could pass over. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, his four-year-old son had come down to visit his dad. As he was closing the bridge, he could hear the voice of his son, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? And immediately he figured that his son had followed him there. And so he ran as quickly as he could to another station where there was a switch, because now the switch was jammed and the bridge wouldn't lock, because his son was stuck in the gears. And the only thing he could do in order to rescue his son would be to go down there and take him out with his own two hands which would mean that the train would totally derail and hundreds of people would go into the river below. What do you do? Spare your own son at the expense of hundreds of innocent lives? And he made the choice as God himself made the choice. He never spared his son. He pulled the switch, held it with all of his might. As the train passed over, as the story is told, the people were never aware that anything had transpired beyond the normal. And meanwhile, his son was crushed to death in the gears. It's an allegory, but it is precisely what God did for you and for me and for that world out there. 
God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Study up on crucifixion. There's another good subject for you to study upon. Study up on what actually happened on the cross. It's not like you see in Hollywood. It's so brutal, it begs a description. But that's what God did for you and your neighbors and your family. Are you embarrassed by Jesus? I'm watching NFL players, some other professional players who have great reputations that are coming straight out. And I admire them for that. I truly do. They have a lot to lose. I've seen a heavyweight champion talking about Jesus openly and somebody basically saying, well, we don't want to hear about Jesus. We want to hear about the fight. And all he kept saying was, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. I guess you're not going to argue with a guy who's huge and he's the heavyweight champion. (laughs) They may argue with you, though. But always remember this. Three words. The Bible says. Or two words. Jesus said. It's not you that said it. Jesus that said it. Today, what you've heard when I quoted a book and a verse, a chapter and a verse, is not what I said. It's what Jesus said, the apostles and the prophets. Question is, now, as we review this subject, where for us here in this congregation, this is a review. Is it time for you to renew your commitment to Christ? Is it time for you to say, my priorities are all upside down? Is it time for you to say, you know, pastor, you're right. I, I've forgotten about this. That's the reason those gospel tracts are in the back. Not one of those tracts tells people how to become a millionaire, billionaire. Doesn't tell them how to get more wealth. Doesn't talk about anything except this that you heard today. Is it time? And I'm speaking to experienced Christians. I'm speaking to people who've been around for a while. Is it time to do as Samson did when he shook himself? He had to shake himself. And the strength of the Spirit of God came on him. You know what? I believe it's time. I really do. I believe we have professing Christians who are saved, but you're going to heaven all by yourself. You're asleep at the wheel. This is not the time to be sleeping. This is the time, at the very least, for us to be praying. Do you have a list of people you pray for that they would be saved? I do. I have a steady list of certain people. It's all memorized. Nothing's written down. It's all memorized in my head. I go through this list. Do you assume because your children were brought to church that they're automatically getting a pass going to heaven? It doesn't work that way either. Every individual must make a decision for themselves. I've made mine. I know what the cost is. I know what the price is. I've paid a lot of it. My wife has as well, by the way. And I'm going to have to just stay with that to the very end. How about you? Let's bow our hearts. Let's think about these things. And while your head is bowed, your heart is bowed, I want to just tell you quickly. I was in a church in Massachusetts about 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And I preached a message just like this. Actually, it was a little bit more in-depth than this one was. And a woman, a young black woman, maybe in her 40s at the time, came over to me and said, Pastor, I just want to thank you for that message. She said, I haven't heard a message like that since I was a little girl. And that got me to thinking. So I asked a pastor who at the time was on my staff. I said, when's the last time you heard a message on hell? And his answer to me was, never. Then I asked him this question. This is one of my staff pastors. When's the last time you preached a message on hell? It was the same answer. Never. Never? Preacher? I'm sad to admit that I didn't dismiss him, which is what I should have done. But now I'm older and wiser and more experienced. You, if I were to ask you today, when is the last time on radio or television you've heard a message on hell? Many of you would say, I don't know that I ever have. Because it's not being taught much. God has always looked for the small, the remnant, the many times it's young people who take the message to heart. Take this message to heart. 
Stop going around wringing your hands thinking about the end of the world because it relates to you or how it relates to you or as it relates to you. Think of others. Think of other people. Pray for them. The most important thing is not that they have a happy life, but a holy one. A life where they have received Christ, the Christ of the Bible. How about you today? I hate to make presumptions even when I know people a long time. Is Christ your Savior? I'm not your Savior. You know that. There's no preacher you've ever read or heard or seen that's your Savior. There's no Savior but Jesus. He's the only one. Is he your Savior from this place here? It is not his will that you should be there. That's good news. And desires to save you from it, and that's good news. But the road will definitely be difficult, and that's coming from Jesus as well. But it's worth it. And secondly, as we pray, when is the last time you actually led someone to Christ? And you would think, you know, 40, 50, 30-year-old Christians have dozens and dozens, but that's not the case all over the world. That has to change in this hour of history. Let's pray. That the grace of God would be given again to all of us to do what we should do. Father, we just pray today that we would renew our relationship with you. I don't think there's anyone, whether they're watching the live stream or they're listening by way of radio or they're sitting here in the sanctuary, I don't think there's anyone who wants to amend your book, tear out the pages, strike lines through things they don't like. So that means we have to go by what you've said and live by what you've said. So I ask you today once again for help, for everybody, that we would all renew our walk with you and do our duty, serve you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, get back to our prayer lives and reading of the word and study of the word, and tell others. Help us, God, to have your spirit leading us, because when it does, it's just a doable thing. Not everybody appreciates it, likes it, or receives it, but it's our duty. Help us, Lord to do our duty. For those seated here today, Lord, who uh, need to renew their relationship with you, they've lost the first love. Help them to revive themselves before they pray for a revival in others. Help them to shake themselves like Samson and walk afresh and walk renewed in Christ. But I think, Lord, most of all, we should be exceptionally grateful for what you have saved us from. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world? loses his own soul. We bless you and praise you this morning, Lord, for what you've done. Help us to understand these things. Help us to apply ourselves to them, for you are our praise. I don't think there's anyone here today who would eat a dinner at someone's home and forget to say thanks, or receive a gift and forget to say thanks. Why do we forget to say thanks to God? Think about what we have been saved from. And that includes things here in the world, the things that we would have fell into had we not been following Christ. So God, we thank you. We're grateful for all you've done. Help us to be reminded to tell others. You will give us the words. We don't have to be outspoken people. We don't have to be uh, extroverts, just willing. And you'll make the opportunity You'll create in us that ability to share you with others. Then we can just wash our hands of the matter. Help others, though, in this hour of history to receive you, to fill up the seats of a local congregation around the world, being truly saved, truly born again. We give you praise, and we give you glory, and we give you honor for all that you've done. And we say today, as we've been saying, Maranatha. Maranatha.
Even so, come Lord Jesus. Bless the food and the time we will have together. Help the brethren to learn each other's names, to get to know one another, and, and certainly to love one another. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor, Father. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen. amen. amen.